Hi, y'all, and welcome back to the All Swell podcast. Gigi here, and I've traveled back to ECU main campus to talk to one of my classmates and fellow TCS members, Allison Rupp. She is also in Kira and I's Integrated Coastal Sciences program here at ECU. And one of the things I love about this program and TCS in general is the variety of sciences that come together to understand the coast and particularly its history. So welcome to the show, Allison. How are you doing today? Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. It's co- cool here today, which is kind of nice. It's not blazing hot outside. Oh my gosh, I know. When I walked outside, I was like, wow, it feels so nice to like be back on campus, see everybody walking around. Like I just really, I'm like, yes, let's get into research. Like, (laughs) so what would you say is kind of like your position and like what, how did you get into maritime studies? So I am currently in my second year here at ECU, but this is my second round of, of schooling at ECU. I came here a few years ago for maritime archaeology. Uh, so I would classify myself as a maritime archaeologist. That's now broadening into interdisciplinary research to understand some of the dynamics of shipwreck degradation um, within the underwater world. But I started out in maritime um, archaeology and how did I get into it? Um, I grew up in North Carolina. Uh, for all you North Carolinians out there, I was from born and raised in Chapel Hill, and we would go out to the Outer Banks all the time. And I'm going to embarrass my father here. <laughs> um, but we went to the graveyard of the Atlantic Museum out in Hatteras, and they had an exhibit on a lost shipwreck. And he just turned to me and was like, you're going to find that one day. And I was like, father you're lying (laughs) I feel like that happens I had a similar situation with my dad down in South Carolina like he grew up right across from the University of South Carolina's um, uh, research reserve and the one that's also tied to the National Estuarine Research Reserve and he was like you are like this this is gonna be you one day and then same deal like I kept down that path the rest of my life and I'm very lucky to keep going with that, which yeah. feels like really, really crazy. And so you said you were Chapel Hill. So did you come to ECU because of our, the maritime archaeology program? Yeah. So ECU is one of the few uh, maritime archaeology programs in the country. I think there's three that actually broadcast themselves as a maritime archaeology school, and ECU is one of them. Um, so when I was looking around for what to do, after my undergrad and I studied history and classics and was like, Roman archaeology is the way to go. And did a field school and was like, nope, okay, this is fun. I want to go underwater. <laughs> pivot, pivot. Yeah. And I pivoted right into Greenville uh, and was here for two and a half years getting my master's. Um, looked at piracy in North Carolina before transitioning out of here. and. Luckily, they wanted to keep working with me, so I transitioned back. That's awesome. And, you know, it just goes with our namesake, being the pirates. Yes. And everything. (laughs) It's why the school has the mascot that they have. And so you mentioned um, the graveyard of the Atlantic Museum in Hatteras, and you got to just have a talk there. Can you speak more to what you talked about there and how that's kind of, like, awesome that you came full circle? Back. <laughs> I know. I, I didn't walk around the museum this time, so I don't know if that exhibit <laughs> is still there. Um, but I, so I was talking about a project that I did with my now advisor, 
Um, at the time of the project, he was my boss, um, Dr. Nathan Richards. He got a grant from the NOAA um, Ocean Exploration Project with the Maritime Heritage Program um, director, Joe Hoyt. And we were offshore surveying the Wimble Shoals area of, uh, which is off of Verdanthe, uh, further up the island from the museum. And so as part of that project, I did a bunch of historical research to see what shipwrecks wrecked it or which ships wrecked in that area, um, how close they were to shore, how far they were from shore, kind of what caused their wrecking, what time of the year they are wrecking. So it moved beyond the identifying the wrecks in the area to exploring the trends in wrecking history along that part of Hatteras Island. Uh, so we looked at some specific stories of ships that we could find based on life-saving records, but a lot of it was like statistical analysis from the overall historical databases that the state has. Um, the underwater archaeology branch has a huge historical database of shipwrecks off of the coast so they can, you know, see if they can figure out which ones are which. Most of the time we can't, um, but they have collated all of this data and we were able to try to identify trends in which way wrecks were, or ships were going when they wrecked in certain times of the year to see if it was like because of human error or environmental conditions or a little bit of both. Yeah, that's where I guess you start integrating in like the hydrology mm -hmm. aspect and then the like hydrogeology yeah. of like how, because we have all these sandbars and stuff offshore and they all move. Mm -hmm. I mean, the bear, it's so crazy to think about in geologic time that like the barrier islands are, they are less than like a band in the Grand Canyon of like sediment time, <laughs> which is still a fact that like mind boggles me. So I can't even imagine like, you have to then, you know, try and find the data for this, for shipwrecks, what, starting, what century, like, are you going back towards? We have shipwrecks off of North Carolina that we know of historically have not found that date to the 1500s. Wow. Um, and the road, well, yeah, 1500s, yeah. <laughs> That, that is, like, insane. Most are from the 1800s because that's when you see most of the wooden wrecks are, are, are like, the highest quantity of ships going around the world, right? Yeah. There's a lot of trade happening in the 1800s. They're also transitioning from sail to steam, so there's just a lot of movement um, of goods up and down the shores. Is that a time period you prefer to study, or do you prefer some of the more, like, World War II era types? of things that are going on? Uh, so originally, and I think in my heart, I like the colonial era. I, that's where I started with the, the pirate research. And I think the colonial era beyond the pirate research in terms of shipping in North Carolina in particular is very untouched. Um, my current research is actually working at a World War One wreck. So, <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Even more different, and it's also not in North Carolina; it's in Maryland. So that's right. You're moving up towards Chesapeake yeah. in that area, which I think a lot of people typically don't think about World War One, World War Two stuff being up in that region. Yeah. How did you get involved with going up towards that way for your your work? Uh, so that came out of some partnerships with the Maritime Her NOAA's Maritime Heritage Program um, and my advisor and the Maritime Studies Program 
Uh, and there's a sanctuary up there that's now, what is it, 2022? So four years old. Okay, very um, young. The Mallows Bay Potomac River National Marine Sanctuary. It's an 18 square mile area um, that spans mostly Maryland waters, but the main bay is kind of across the river from Quantico, Virginia. Oh, wow. Um, so we spent the summer up there and saw a bunch of, you know, Apache helicopters and everybody oh, flying yeah. around. I know, I know about that stuff very well. I live for those of you who don't know. I, I live in Norfolk and yeah, know a lot of the military up there. And yeah, yeah it's a, it's a lot of interesting stuff coming to Quantico. You're used to that in that part of the world. You know, you know a jet or something's gonna fly over yeah. anytime, or you know, the boats coming up the going up down yeah. the Potomac and everything. So during uh, World War One, the uh, when the U.S. entered, they started an emergency shipping shipbuilding program to transfer men and supplies around around the Atlantic to get them to the the European theater. And they had two programs. They had an iron and steel that was predominantly meant to carry the men. And then they had a wooden one, which was predominantly meant to carry the supplies. And it was said that they were going to build a wooden ship bridge to Europe. Um, Ultimately, the program failed uh, for multiple reasons, which maybe could be a later podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I think we could probably spend a whole podcast on like World War One, World War Two history and the and and how like it's like shifted the coastline and everything. I mean, not in not only here, but across the whole globe. I mean, it, it its impacts, I mean, really like totally changed the course of history on so many accounts. Yeah. So these, the, when the program ended and the war ended, they had some completed, some half completed ships that they didn't know what to do with. And so they were sold to a salvage company that hauled about 200 of them up into the Potomac River to figure out how to salvage the iron and the, the steamship machinery off of their wreck to use on, or off of the ships to use on other vessels. Um, which was common practice and other things that they could take off of them. And over time, they kind of just piled into this bay in Maryland, which they used for a long time for salvage until about the end of World War II, a little after World War II when it became too expensive to to do that anymore. And so they just left them there and they've essentially created their own ecosystem. Wow. Of I think they know of about 118 that are left in the bay. And they're all just lined up one one next to each other. Wow. And you, so you said there's like a mix there of like steel. So you have like a more heart, something that's not going to deteriorate mm-hmm. and over time as long as like say early as like wood. Yeah. And that probably creates, I imagine, biologically different substrates that then like fish, like you got a fisheries situation yeah. up there going on. Yeah. So there's some differences in what we're seeing between the iron and the wood up there. Or we yeah. may be able to see. There's multiple projects going on, um, which again, maybe a later story. <laughs> um, but we do know that they've allowed for a sediment accretion in the bay because they're basically acting as a breakwater. So they're yeah. allowing creatures to live there. They're allowing sediment to accrete and, and kind of holding back some of that coastal erosion that is happening. Yeah, and that's, I mean, man, the Chesapeake gets brought up, I think, a lot in, in what's going on on human like interaction with the environment and what what we've kind of done and how we can take away ecosystem everybody knows kind of about the 
the crabs. You know, I, I had an advisor at South Carolina that that was all, all he'd studied was blue crabs. And uh, later on in life, I'm like, you know what? I get it. <laughs> and, but I imagine, is that also too, do you have to take into account like salinity in that, in this situation as well? Is it more, is it less saline up there because it's more in the river or? Yeah. So we're still looking into that. Um, they do have some buoys that are monitoring that and we're going to look at that as this research continues. Um, we do know that salinity does play a role in some of the wood biodegrading organisms. Uh, so one that everybody probably might know about is shipworm and it's very common in the Caribbean and warmer saline waters because that's just where they thrive. And essentially these little worms like to eat away at the wood and that over time deteriorates them both as a physical ship. So this is something that they were dealing dealing with in the 16, 17, 1800s. Um, so they put copper sheathing, they put tar, they put anything they could not only to keep it watertight, but try to keep some of these shipworms out. But they also affect the stability of wrecks underwater now. And so there are large concerns that these creatures are gonna be able to work their way up into these currently less saline conditions as things shift. Yeah, which as we know, kind of salt water is intruding mm -hmm. in other places and we kind of have to look at it, you know, monitor that now. Cause if we start having less, the, the you know, for people that don't know, you know, you see the barrier islands and we're even seeing this just happen right now. They built a new bridge because one of the islands is kind of, uh, it's about to split into, into two, which then makes the sound behind it have way more saline water. And so I hadn't thought about that interaction with then the wood or the worms, you know, and then if it's you are going to then get invasive species kind of coming up the the Potomac. I guess that's right. Yeah, that's yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> the that's, Potomac. that's where it's at. So you mentioned that you get to, you know, you obviously have to do a lot of work reading a lot of books and, and other stuff. And but can we talk about the other fun aspect of it, which is diving? Yeah. <laughs> so what what do you normally collect when you go down and, and dive at a wreck? Um, so a lot of what we're collecting is information, uh, typically. Uh, most, most archaeological projects these days, we're going down with tape measures and slates and rulers and recording, like physically recording what we can. We'll take down cameras and we'll digitally record everything. Depending on the project, um, we can recover actual artifacts, but that then takes on another step of having to answer questions of why we're recovering and what what are we going to do with them? Are we going to photograph them on land and then stick them back? Or are we going to keep them and conserve them? Um, so it, it really depends on the questions that we're asking. But for me, we're just getting the information. Of, of what how big this height is, what's there, what's still there. Can we compare it to historical records that say like, this is how much of the ship there is left from what it originally was. Yeah. And then sometimes have you guys ever found that like, historically the account was the ship went down for this, but maybe you go down and you're like, oh, there we can see that a cannonball got shot through the ship. <laughs> And so maybe not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In some cases, you can find whole new stories um, about the ships. And and like I said before, we don't know what a lot of these ha what a lot of these sites are. 
Um, most of the time we don't know the name. We're, we're learning as we're going and we're making interpretations based on the layout of say cannons mm-hmm. on the ground. And like, <laughs> and like, well, okay, they're facing in different directions. Like what happened? Or, or like they're super scattered. Um, so I worked on a site in Costa Rica as one of my early field schools here. And two different sites, one was primarily a big brick pile and one was a cannon scatter. And they were supposed to be different ships. And, and I think they're still trying to figure out how those ships got to where they are and why the sites look so different, even though they're less than a mile apart in a bay. Yeah, that's awesome. How did you enjoy your time in Costa Rica? It was a great experience. Yeah, was I, I love to ask this because everybody is like study abroad really sets you down this like path. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that happened for me because when I, I, I went to Australia and they had talked a lot and they, um, a lot of the people there, we were talking about climate change and how would it affect more vulnerable communities, including the indigenous aboriginals there. And I was like, I really want to focus on coast and people. Did you kind of have a similar situation when you went to Costa Rica where you're like, I'm going to pivot my research this way? No, it actually happened before that. Oh, okay. oh, but, but Costa Rica was definitely a very foundational experience because it was the first like true I feel like true experience doing work underwater and like being a part of the whole process of collecting the data and then you know sketching out our our site plan of the wreck so we'll collect all this data and then we'll we'll redraw it on land at a different scale to make sure we are collecting all the information we need since it's basically like a one-shot chance when you're especially in a different country um but my first field school was in italy which i know love italy (laughs) (laughs) it's a great place um but that really like set me on the path i was i fell in love with it but that was also like man it is hot (laughs) (laughs) and i am standing just in the sun and yeah people are probably like how can you complain about being in italy we ate really well but it was you work out in the hot. sun. You work out in the sun enough, or you work out in the field enough, and you're like, yeah. Sometimes I do want to go back in air conditioning, or yeah, I don't want to get covered in bug bites and/or poison ivy. I mean, that's yep. just yeah. <laughs> or lose like shoes to the marsh would be my like. That would be mine. Like, oh my gosh, I love being out there, but yeah, yeah, that's that's not fun. When did you go to Italy? Was that an undergrad? That was an undergrad. Okay. And there there was a water component, which was kind of interesting. So it was a Etruscan, Roman, and medieval like wow. settlement site on the top of this hill, but they had a few wells. Oh. So they had brought in contracted archaeologists, because they weren't going to send the students down the well, <laughs> <laughs> to get this stuff out of the well. Um, and they were, I mean, they were just finding all sorts of really cool stuff once we got past the, like, layer of brick and tile there were coins and all of this was basically preserved in the water at the bottom of the well so as a water quality person did you have somebody then on your team at this point who then was like i'm just gonna study the water like the water that's in the well still no i don't know if they had any of that actually because that'd be so interesting you know as well like they they look at water and the carbon dating and then you can see you know where the water came from originally and that can tell you so much about the past and that's like yeah. how we have know so much about why our climate has changed and what the what it used to be is because of of dating like that yeah so that's interesting
interesting. It's it's I think now like that's what the cool thing is about integration is that we're getting to this point now where we're like we're having many people on these teams getting like every aspect of the site. Oh, I completely agree. I think I think we're moving in a really good direction to be able to answer a lot of different questions about the past and the present and maybe even the future. Yeah. Are there any assumptions or stereotypes about like marine maritime studies or like treasure hunting that you would like to address or discuss? (laughs) (laughs) Um, We think as archaeologists, and I, I try not to speak for the whole field, but I definitely feel like anything we find is a treasure. So we're rarely finding gold or silver or jewels or like ships don't have skeletons standing at the wheels. <laughs> I watched Uncharted recently and um, the oh my gosh. <laughs> and, and there were, you know, that's not what they look I, like. I, I was watching that movie too. For all the others I don't know, it's on, it's on Netflix. I think it's based off a video game. Yeah. But yeah, they have a shipwreck in the movie. And I said the same, I was saying the same thing to, to my boyfriend. I was like, this no, like I don't even think the ship would last that long. It would have deteriorated by then. And like he's just looking at me like, "Why you gotta ruin it?" And I'm like, "But it's." <laughs> I watched it with uh, my friends, and and one of her husband was like, "I really want to watch this with you guys because I think this would be very funny to watch archaeologists react to it." Yeah, but that that's unfortunately not what shipwrecks look like. Um, but so we find all sorts of treasure in in the wood itself, in the iron and steel and what's happening to it, um, beads, you know, anything we're finding, we're considering a treasure because it's something that we can use to learn about the past that we didn't know before. Yeah. And I think that's what's fun about archaeology is that a lot of people haven't seen what we're finding because a lot of people haven't looked at that specific wreck, right? And then you can touch it and you can make it make a stronger connection with people to be like, see, they're using similar stuff. I know, I think that's just human nature in general. It's like, we wanna be connected to, to how people responded to stuff in the past. Like, how did they get through this? How did they go, you know, and, and I mean, now, people in the future are gonna have way too much information <laughs> given social media to like and know what human behavior was like in like 2022. But you know, we don't have as much for, yeah. for back then, like you said, and it's, we can really draw and learn so much from the past. Um, and I like that you mentioned that it's all, you know, it is all treasure. Um, do you have a favorite shipwreck? Or? Do you have a favorite shipwreck? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like a good shipwreck that's kind of a puzzle. Okay. So I realized this when I worked in Vermont um, so I worked at the Lake Champlain Maritime Museum as an AmeriCorps member uh, after I graduated from UC the first time. And I had spent all of my career up to that point working on shipwrecks that really weren't shipwrecks. They were like piles of the stuff that were on the ship or okay. they looked like scatters of cannon. And going to Vermont where it's cold, fresh water, the wrecks particularly the wooden ones, are much more preserved than they are in a warm marine yeah. environment. And so I remember going down first dive ever in the lake. It was cold, <laughs> as you can imagine. It was oh, dark. Yeah. 
going down, swimming along the line because they have a buoy system. So you go down a buoy and then they have a tagline that takes you to the wreck so you don't ruin the wreck. And we're going down swimming and I just look up and I'm like, oh, it's a boat. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's a full size ship that, yes, I just said ships don't look like ships anymore. Yeah. They do in certain instances. And in this case, it did. And, you know, the some of the window panes were still there. Wow. Like some of the parts of the steering um, system were still there. And I was just like, huh. Swam around and I was like, okay, it's a it's a ship. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's really cool. I got up and my, my boss at the time was like, well, what do you think? I said, it was a ship. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we went. I, I can see that where you're like, oh, my gosh, I actually get to see the thing, you yeah. know, fully or like, oh, my gosh, like Titanic. The ship is like actually there. Yeah. You and know? so we went to another site next and it, it was much more degraded and broken up because it had a very different wrecking event. And I was just like, OK, now I can use my like imagination to see what this kind of look like. Right. There was okay. less like. I get it to. I have to put this together Abstract and, and puzzle figure piece. out where yeah. where things go, what end was what, how did this wheel work, why are there, why is this here? Yeah. So it was, Have yeah. you ever done any work up in the Great Lakes, too? Because I know they have a lot of wrecks as well. They do. I have not. Yeah. I know the Maritime Studies Program has, um, but I've never... I've never been up that far. Oh, okay. Yeah, I my family is um, from Minnesota and stuff, and I, I love it up there. But I, I find it so fascinating, and a lot of people don't realize is that all of the counties surrounding the Great Lakes are coastal counties by definition by, by NOAA. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, um, and, you know, if you go on the Weather Channel, because they get advisories for stuff, and if you've ever been to Chicago, you know 100% know what I'm talking about with the wind. I mean, you can surf sometimes up there, which is another crazy aspect. But they, a lot of times, get, I feel like, get left out of the discussion yeah. of, like, coastal stuff and and who is a you know what is a coastal area but if you go up on the shore up there you would think that you're looking at the ocean they definitely they just opened or designated i guess two years ago now um another sanctuary in wisconsin the wisconsin historical shipwreck sanctuary and so it's it's one of the few um so the sanctuary program you know they're there to protect natural and cultural resources um, but it's one of the few that like emphasizes the cultural. Oh, awesome! So, so um, how how do you think? How can folks in like the coastal environmental sector like better partner with the people over in like the coastal heritage sector? <laughs> uh, don't forget about us. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I I, like and that. I and I think you know it goes both ways. Um, but I think there's so much that we can learn from the past and and people are definitely connected to the past right i mean you hear about intangible heritage and and the things people get from just going to the beach and and having their families go to the beach every year um but i think some of that does tie in into the physical remains i mean just imagine if you go out to hatteras and the lighthouses are gone uh, yeah, like, I couldn't imagine it. Or even as well, some of the old beach houses. Yeah. And the families that would go there, like, for time to time, or the old, you know, they had, since it was a ferry system at the beginning, like the old ferry mm-hmm. docks that they have. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And, I mean, look at the two of us. We're sitting here, and we are, like, lives have spawned off onto these, like, incredible job opportunities because of moments at the coast. Yeah. 
So I think including and bringing in that cultural heritage side, you you can help people deal with what's about to change. And you can we can come up with ways collectively to kind of address those changes and help people. I mean, yeah coastal communities are are going through a lot and will continue to go through a lot of changes here soon and i think losing that cultural side is a detriment and to defining their community so if we can help facilitate that with recording these sites and coming up with digital models and digital techniques to be able to hold on to something of that tangibleness yeah, even if it like changes story arc gis like mm-hmm. story maps and stuff and i i agree i think that's why sometimes people that like grew up on the coast are maybe sometimes uh they want to share that with people that then maybe just they just now moved to the coast they want to share them kind of like this resiliency that they have because you're you you are you're dealing with a lot of factors when you are a coastal inhabitant especially in places such as the outer banks where you are so far removed and you really are on your own for a lot of goods and services as well and i i love that that you can i think about like the old life-saving stations too and Mm -hmm. i mean that's what you say you're using the records from that to learn about like how many people were on these shipwrecks like what cargo Mm -hmm. they had where they you know where do we think the ship landed all from a life-saving station yeah yeah that's that's awesome and like we've kind of brought up different like partnerships that you've had or done is there um any partnership that's been really special to you that's like that you're really really proud of and and why kind of the also like i'd love you to talk more about how like public speaking too is really important for what you do yeah um partnerships i feel like there's two different questions there (laughs) (laughs) i gave you a lot sorry um i think right now just because of where i am in my research um I am really enjoying the growing partnerships with um, NOAA and and moving forward with my own research, Um, not only because I kind of need need it, but I think there's a lot that can be done and and hopefully my research can, can further our understanding of how things are degrading underwater and can be used across multiple different agencies and think that's everybody's hope is their research is impactful yeah um, but I think having having doing this relation or doing this research and building this relationship off of existing relationships might make it more accessible to at least that agency yeah and so I think it's been really fruitful to not only learn about the agency and and it's different management practices, but also try to figure out, well, how does this fit in and how can this really help them? Yeah. Um, public speaking, I mean, because a lot of what we do is really inaccessible to the public to watch or witness. It's not like you're, you know, you're, if we opened a dig here on campus at the yeah. courtyard at Flanagan, anybody could come out and talk to us. You know, it's much if, harder to find the way to get out there. But yeah, it's kind of, it's it's a di- there's a difficult, you got to find a door at the bo- basement to get to the courtyard. Okay, yeah. we did it in the, in the lawn, in the, what is that? The quad? Like the lawn, yeah. I, yeah, so my, many more people could see it. And it's, sometimes that is about access. And I like that you said that about networking, you know, across the agencies. I think that's something that didn't previously happen and now it's 
thank, thankful to computers and other things that we, you really, the networking is such an important aspect of, of working in the coastal sector. Mm-hmm. You have to be working with everyone um, just to be kind of on this fight of, of the climate change. Yeah. And I mean, we're all fighting for the same thing. I know. Even yeah. if we're doing it from different disciplines or different, like, passionate parts of that oh i think so too i mean i do chemical contamination but i understand the heart of like you wanting to be able to tell the story about the shipwreck i feel the same way about wanting to tell the story of people that have been chemically contaminated yeah and it's that's i think where the social science cultural aspect um comes into play and is so important going forward Mm -hmm. uh, with what we do. And so I also heard from one of our former co-hosts, Kara, that y'all worked together in Beaufort. Can you tell us more about that and and how fun that was? Oh, that was a great (laughs) summer. Um, Kara and I worked at the North Carolina Maritime Museum in Beaufort. Um, I don't know. A while ago now. <laughs> I love I love that museum. Uh, yeah, that's the one. If you haven't been, it has a very large um, Blackbeard exhibit and Queen Anne's Revenge uh, shipwreck exhibit. They're the official repository for the artifacts coming off of that wreck. Um, and so I was working there as a collections intern, and Kara was there working as an archaeology intern and then turned into a summer camp counselor. Oh, oh man. <laughs> we could probably do a whole podcast about summer camp counseling. We probably as well. <laughs> probably could. Um, but we had a great time uh, learning from each other and, you know, both being interested in archaeology and, and collections um, and, and that aspect of it. But then also working with the kids. Um, I, they let me out of collections a few times <laughs> to go hang out with summer camp. Uh, and I learned to fish along with the children. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> did you learn to cast net? Oh, yeah. We did have uh, a fun day out on a boat um, because the NOAA, one of the NOAA offices for the coastal management yeah, is like right, right, a, right across yeah. the street. And so they, they we partnered with them and they took us out and the kids out on a boat and did trawling. <gasps> oh, my gosh. And, and they brought <laughs> we brought everything up to see what was in it. And the captain um, taught Kara and I how to dehead shrimp and then gave us all the shrimp we found. Hey, that is a great tool to learn for the rest of your life. It was, if you're a peel and eat fan. It was anyway. awesome. I believe we made really good tacos and then went to oh, a baseball game that night. That's awesome. Oh, my God. And I don't think there there is almost no better feeling than seeing some of those kids and some of the shy kids that they're not really sure and then they get on that boat or they fish and then they're like by the end of the day they're like taking a picture and trying to kiss the fish mm-hmm. or they like catch one or they do a really good cast yeah there is almost no better feeling than witnessing that and they loved it i mean it was it was a good summer <laughs> yeah that's awesome and what is, I, I love i feel like this happens all the time it's a small world in the coastal arena i know i mean you really you really can just like oh you know it's like, oh, we kind of know everybody. It's 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 awesome, and I lo- that's what I love about the network. That's what I love about TCS is you just get to meet all these people, and you all kind of have a common goal, and get to share in the love for marine science. Yeah. So, is there any final thoughts that you'd like to share? And can you please share, you know, your maybe your email or something where people, if they have more questions about maritime studies or some of the shipwrecks that you mentioned in the work that you do, where they can reach out to you? Yes, I will happily give out my email. Okay, say it. Uh, you don't have to say it. I'll, I'll, it'll be in the show notes, everybody. <laughs> it might be complicated to put all the letters in there. Yeah. Um, I I guess the, the parting point I have to say, um, 
if you see a giant wreck on the beach, please tell somebody. <laughs> we want to know. Um, don't don't just rip it apart. Um, which which just happened, and I know that's a big part of of coastal life and past coastal life is that salvage. Um, but we do, we can still get stuff from it, and we we don't. We do want to preserve some of this stuff for the future, even if it's physically there and other divers can visit it in the future. So yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast yeah. today. It's so exciting. And I, I think it's, we really needed to, you know, finally showcase the Maritime study stuff since we are ECU and we are the Pirates. We uh, can do it again. <laughs> I know. We will continue on. If, if uh, any listeners out there, if you want to hear more about maybe the World War One or the colonial times, please let us know. And we will definitely um, get Allison to bring us some more of her coworkers and, and focus on some of the Maritime stuff. And yeah. In the meantime, though, next week we'll, we will be joined by the Duke team, Catherine, Nat, and they'll be introducing their other co-host, Rory. And they have some exciting topics coming up, including discussing different perspectives of, of environmental management. And so thank you all so much. And I'm going to have Allison join me in our regular saying. Are you ready? <laughs> all right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to remember We're turning the laptop. All right. Everybody have a good week. And remember, where, where there's, there's a will, will there's a wave. wave.